From Your Broccoli Weekly, this is Generation Windrush, a two-part documentary special, and I'm your host, Jarja Mohammed. So it feels like almost every other person in the UK, in cities, towns and villages across the country, had joined up to spend their Thursday evenings clapping and cheering out of windows on doorsteps in support of the National Health Service staff. 2020 will be the year in which the NHS has defined this country. The doctors, nurses, nursing assistants and porters right on the front line of this COVID-19 crisis. I actually don't think there's been a time in my life that I've been so confused about what was going to happen with my future. But it does bring me comfort knowing that we are supported by the NHS staff. For me, when I think of the NHS, my mind goes to my grandparents' generation to those who played a key role in helping to set it up in the 1950s and 60s and served the nation for so many years of their lives. Another story that came out in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis that kind of went by without a mention was the publication of the Windrush Report. It was the end of a scandal that tarnished British politics, the governing Tory party, and most importantly, the lives of many elderly West Indians who ended up being deported back to countries they hadn't lived in for decades or threatened with deportation. It ruined many lives and destroyed many families, and I don't want their story to go unnoticed or unheard. Before we delve in, I want you to take a moment to picture yourself in this position I'm about to describe. You've just made a huge decision to leave your small Caribbean island, where you've lived most of your young adult life. It's very green, fresh, full of sunshine but there's been an invitation to move to the mother country for a better life. So you choose to go for it and to move to a country you studied and read about. People talk about the streets of London being paved with gold. It's a strange land, promising prosperity and good employment in the land of hope and glory. So this is why at Broccoli, we're spending time over this two-part series exploring the lives of the people the Windrush generation, who helped to build the country we now live in. One of those health service pioneers I've had the honour to speak to is Alison Williams. She spoke to me about her experiences of coming to England in the late 60s. I came to London, to England, during the Windrush period in 1969. So that put me as a member of that category. I had an interesting journey coming through to to London to do nursing because I spent a long time working as a a career civil servant before deciding at 21 to change careers. Um, And all it was was that I wanted to be like my mother. My mother was an incredible human being who was very inspirational and very encouraging with everything I ever did and everything any of her five children did. And I wanted to be like her, and I used to follow her quite a bit as a youngster when she did clinics and when she delivered babies, etc. And I thought it must be the most wonderful career to have in the world. There had been a drive from England because the British were looking for people from the colonies to come to help developed the country after the Second World War, and especially the National Health Service. 
So it was quite timely for me to decide that I would go at that time and, and um, forge my career in nursing and midwifery. I also felt very special, actually, that we were taking on this really, really heroic challenge and coming up to England to help the British develop the NHS. And so I decided that I would come to London, and I did that. But I had quite a lot of expectations about coming to London or England. I thought it sounded like an amazing place. You know, to put it in perspective, all of my secondary school education was based on the English system. So I knew everything about all their tourist attractions, about all their kings and queens, all the history, the literature, Shakespeare, everything um, was English-based. In June 1948, the merchant vessel Windrush, where the term originates, made a 5,000-mile journey from the Caribbean to England with 500 passengers. Made up mainly of ex-servicemen on board from Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago and a few other islands. The passengers on board the Windrush were invited to come to Britain after World War II, as there was a shortage of labour. In the 20 years or so following the arrival, thousands more West Indians arrived, and made up mainly of skilled workers. Collectively, they became known as the Windrush Generation. This was a wave of migration that brought half a million Caribbean people to Britain. The country would be changed forever by their arrival, and by their children, and now by us, their grandchildren. I met a lot of um, fellow Trinidadians especially, and it was quite extraordinary because even though Trinidad is quite a small place with only about a million inhabitants, none of us knew each other. To put it in perspective, my, my class had 30 um, students, 30 nursing students, and 16 of us were from the Caribbean, 14 from Trinidad alone. And then we had girls from Africa, Persia, Malaysia, Singapore, and Ireland. And there was one single lone English girl in the, in the group. You know, it was very uplifting because we didn't actually feel very lonely, most of us. We were able to bear the... Um, the racism and the problems that we coped with um, as we trained. The food itself, especially lunch and dinner, was so different to anything we'd ever had as West Indians. Um, you know, it was like the opposite derivatives of what we, we used to, a lot of rice, and there were a lot of potatoes instead. And, you know, our provisions were quite um, heavy, kind of heavy-duty stuff, which was nice and tasty. Um, but, you know, they used so much like things like cabbage and broccoli that I had never really been used to eating like that. I mean, cabbage and potatoes. Cabbage we put in, in um, coleslaw. And, um, and potatoes we only ever ate in potato salad or curry. You know, not as a main staple, you know. Alison told me about her experiences of training as a nurse in London. When we got out of the classroom and went onto the wards, I, you know, I had another culture shock because 
even the staff that you're working with asking you, where is Trinidad? I mean, some of them were quite knowledgeable because they had worked with West Indians before. But the patients were the worst, you know, asking what part of Africa, what part of America, what part of Jamaica was Trinidad? And you thought, my goodness, you know, these <laughs> these people don't know anything. And they would ask you, you know, very you know, things like how how do you live and where where are, where do you put your tree houses and where were the best places and how did you get up? Did you build your make your own ladders or or you know, all sorts of or did you just climb? I thought, but you know, where are these people from? How come they don't understand? You know, that Trinidad is very well developed. But, you know, we're, we're quite worldly and we're just really a smaller place than they were, you know? And so I used to find that quite insulting and quite worrying. And then the, the, the racism, the actual physical racism, where people would slap your hands away, you know, telling you, oh, don't touch me, the black is going to rub off on me. I don't want to be dirty. And, you know, you're dirty with that kind of, with that color skin. And, and you know, they used to think about, you know, what color, and say things like, oh, what color is your blood? It couldn't be red blood like ours. It must be black or it must be dirty. And it was really strange. And I used to get very depressed from that. Very. That was the most depressing time, um, like the first year of my training, when people still behaved like that, or maybe six months, because I got angry one day on the ward, and I think it was my saving grace when um, this man, you know, called me a black bastard, and, you know, why don't you go back where you come from? Um, and I said, you know, I am sick to death of you calling, you people calling me black. And I got very angry. I thought I would be in big trouble. And I said, I am 21 years old and I know that I am black. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something new. And that actually stopped them in their tracks. And for the time, the rest of the time, nothing bothered me. It, it It's like it gave me, you know, this permission to do my job properly now and and really get on with things and, and make a new life for myself and um, and just leave these silly people alone. Many experience racism, discrimination, and often found it hard to get an adequate home to live in. I looked to a second-generation Windrusher for some insight into the wider experiences of West Indian newcomers to Britain. Uh, my parents are Jamaican. They both came from Jamaica in the late 1950s, and uh, they produced seven children. I'm the middle child, number three, and I'm now on my fifth book, Homecoming, which is a oral history of Caribbean migration to Britain. Colin Grant is a historian and author. His book Homecoming is made up of scores of interviews from the Windrush generation, documenting and preserving their experiences of coming to Britain. When I was growing up in Luton in the late 1960s and 70s, we didn't have television until 1972 in my Jamaican household. And all the people that were around my, my mum and dad, my mum was called Ethlyn, and my father was called Clinton, but his nickname was Bad Guy. 
He's called Bad Guy because he had bags under his eyes all the time. And when I was growing up with these wonderful Caribbean people, these adults, they were to me like stars. They were our television. They were so dramatic and funny and mischievous and witty, sometimes rude, very direct, but always lovely and livening. And they all had these wonderful nicknames as well. There was a guy called Shine, who was bald, obviously. There's another guy called Anxious, who was always very anxious. Uh, Tidy Boots always was fussy about his footwear. Clock had one arm longer than the other. And my all-time favourite was a guy they called Summerwear. And when Summerwear came to this country from Jamaica in 1959, he insisted on wearing light summer suits, tropical suits, no matter the weather, come hail or storm. And when I was researching this book, Homecoming, I asked my mum, well, whatever happened to Summerwear? And she said, well, boy, within a few months, he caught a chill and died. And although it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of funny and wittily, wittily funny, I think, that she said it. She didn't say it to get a laugh. She just said it straight. And that's the other thing I love about these Caribbean people, that they say things straight, but actually there's a lot of humour in, in, in their outlook. So when I was uh, thinking about all the people that I was surrounded by when I was growing up, I thought, wow, I haven't seen these stories written very much or talked about very much in the popular press or in books even. I mean, there have been books in the past. A famous book by a man called Sam Selvon did a book called uh, Lonely Londoners. And of course, people might know of Andrew Levy's book, Small Island. But actually, outside of a, maybe a handful of books, there were these personal stories which I knew were very rich and rewarding. So I was determined to hoover up some of these interviews because I had recognised that now these people who would have come in the 40s and 50s are now in their 80s and their 90s. So they're towards the ends of their lives. And I recognise that uh, all my life I've felt that there's been this absence of stories. Stories not just to support and sustain me and my siblings, but also stories that I want to pass on to my children and maybe to think about them passing those stories on to their children. I feel very strongly that I have to be a kind of modern-day griot. As Bob Marley say, half the story hasn't been told. So in a way, I'm telling my story. And I think I'm pretty equipped to tell the story. I mean, sadly, um, I may not sound as if I'm from the Caribbean, but I know how to write the lingo. I know how to communicate with people. And I know that I can push beyond the cliches. So, for instance, Judge, when I was growing up, um, you might have heard this phrase when it comes to people from the Caribbean in the 50s and 60s trying to find accommodation. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And that refers to the little notes that are left in windows of people who are going to rent out a room or even in shop windows. And, and so I interviewed many people who who had this experience of having these doors slammed in their faces. Now, one woman I interviewed was uh, this amazing woman called Joyce Estelle Trotman. She's 92, she's from Guyana. Um, she's a teacher, a wonderful teacher of the kind of ER Braithwaite type. She was telling me about the number of times that she would see an advert for a, a room to rent. And she said she would ring ahead and alert them to her colour just to get that out of the way so that she wouldn't get up there and be rejected. And she told me that till today, 60 years later, she can't 
climb the steps and knock on a front door of a house of a stranger if she suspects the door will be opened by a white person. So the trauma is deep. It's embedded in people's souls. And I don't think that's quite been realised. I had in mind this very famous phrase by this great Nigerian writer called Chinua Echebe. And Chinua Echebe talked about uh, whose story is it anyway? He talked about the importance of storytelling for black people. And he said this, he said this, until the lions have their own historians, the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So time and time again, I think our stories have been told by white people or English people or European people with their own perspective. And sometimes we become even the kind of subplot to our own stories. So I was determined to make sure to tell the stories from an African-Caribbean perspective, to tell the story from the inside out rather from the outside in. I appreciate the work Colin has done, working hard to preserve the stories untold of these pioneers, which resonates with me strongly. And it makes me reflect on the stories my own grandma would tell me, as she is also from the Windrush generation. She described the hardships and some of the joys of coming to England, like having to share a room with another couple, where they would sleep in a day while she worked, and they would work at night while she slept. I could only imagine the many sacrifices she had to make merely to survive. Colin feels that there is a great importance in archiving the stories of this generation. This brings visibility to their own reality, whether it's their joyous characters or the emotional pain that many had been feeling. When I interviewed these elderly men, I was really surprised that I made so many of them cry. What I hadn't realised was that when these people left the Caribbean, sometimes they were just teenagers. And they always had the idea that they would go back. In Jamaican parlance, we say that we'd work some money and then go back. Work and prosper, save and prosper, and then return. But sometimes, by the time they saved up enough money to return, their parents had died. And that's when the tears came, unbidden. Floods and floods of tears. The last time they'd seen their father or their mother was when they waved them off from the harbour to come to England. And I'll never forget those moments, actually. I mean, I found them very poignant and powerful and I felt very privileged to be in the company of people who were able to cry and able to reveal their emotional heart, to reveal their emotional lives. The Guardian newspaper broke a story in the spring of 2018, which claimed that people from the Windrush generation and their family members were being wrongfully deported. It leads back to 2010 under Theresa May, who at the time was the Home Secretary, and on her watch, all the landing cards had been destroyed from the 50s and 60s. These landing cards were absolutely essential because this was the last remaining proof of a Windrush's arrival date. So their right to remain in the UK was in jeopardy. Their legal status had changed instantly, despite them living, working and paying tax in Britain for the majority of their lives. They were told they needed evidence, including passports, to continue working or getting NHS treatment but many of them had arrived on their parents' passports and never applied for travel documents. I used to be a councillor on Hackney, so 
people still contact me from time to time for help and assistance. And I looked at his information. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I realised there's something fundamentally wrong. I noticed then there was a pattern, so I did a bit of research work, read all the various articles, contact with Amelia Gentleman at one stage, and I realised that actually this was a class action targeting the women's generation, particularly the children of the women's generation, and I launched my petition on the UK government website in March 2018. That was Patrick Vernon. He is one of the leading social activists of the Windrush scandal in the UK. You'll hear more from him in part two. In the second part of Generation Windrush, I'll be looking deeper into the issues the Windrush generation encountered, the racism and the sacrifices they had to make to support their families, whilst they tried to adapt to British life, and the aftermath of the hostile environment leaving them stripped of their British identity. I've been your host, Jarja Mohammed. Make sure to tune in to part two of Generation Windrush. <laughs>